Welcome to the second Conflict Research Group public lecture of the, this term. Our speaker this evening is Brenton O'Leary, who is the Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, Brenton is amongst his many distinctions, and I'll only speak uh, very shortly about some of them. One of his distinctions is that he is an alumni of LSE. He did his PhD at LSE, and he was also a professor in the government department until 2003. Um, Brandon is one of the world's leading scholars on national and ethnic conflict. He's also one of the world's leading advocates of consociationalism as a, as a means of managing conflict in divided societies. Uh, I would like to just briefly introduce you, Brenton, by, by talking about two bodies of work which I think um, uh, are particularly distinctive. The first is his body of work on Northern Ireland, particularly in the 1990s, which was a crucial time in the peace process in Northern Ireland. And he uh, produced two significant books in that period, The Politics of Antagonism in 1993 and Explaining Northern Ireland in 1995, I think it was. And uh, both of these books went very much against the grain of the time, arguing for consociational type uh, solution for Northern Ireland, which was a very brave position to be taking at that moment in the peace process. Um, Brenton also played a role advising the Labour Party and Mo Molum in particular, who played a pivotal role in getting the peace process going. And uh, he also went on to um, influence police reform in Northern Ireland, and policing, of course, was one of the issues that was at, at the very heart of the conflict. And uh, uh, it's often overlooked that Brendan and his co-author, John McGarry, um, produced a report that influenced the way the policing reform rolled out in Northern Ireland after 2000. His second body of work is that on Iraq. Uh, after the 2003 US intervention in Iraq, Brendan became a constitutional advisor to the regional government in Kurdistan. And out of his various visits to Kurdistan and his role there, uh, he produced two notable books. First was uh, a book on the future of Kurdistan in Iraq in 2006, and the second was in 2009, How to Get Out of Iraq with Integrity. More recently, Brendan has been working with the United Nations. He's a senior advisor on their power sharing in the, the standby team of the Mediation Support Unit in the UN. And among the many subjects that he's dealing with there is the question of Sudan and the conflicts in Sudan. So our talk this evening, this evening in, our, in his talk this evening, he will attempt to bring together some reflections on both of these major issues, Iraq and Sudan. Brendan, welcome. Thank you very much, Jim. It's an honor and pleasure to be back at LSE. The title of my, my lecture is announced. Uh, I'll immediately convert it into a question. Uh, the question is, of course, why is Sudan breaking up, whereas Iraq may remain intact? Perhaps I should um, consolidate what Jim said in his introduction by explaining why it is me 
who is asking this particular question. Nobody else seems to have asked the question. I don't claim to have distinctive originality in uh, dreaming up this particular question. Um, but it hasn't been posed before, and I think the reason why I'm asking it is fairly obvious. Um, what you may not know from Jim's introduction is that I lived in the Sudan between 1969 and 1976 because my late father uh, worked for the United Nations Development Program uh, in Khartoum uh, between the years 1969 and 1976, and I acquired an irresistible attraction to Sudanese politics as a result. Jim's explained the role that I played in the Kurdistan region and also the role I played uh, with the UN. The UN, in the course of 2009-2010, loaned me to the Chatham House team, which was supposed to help promote dialogue between North and South Sudan over their imminent breakup or their imminent deci decision to renew their marriage. We all know uh, the consequences. Um, I was also involved with the UN in the Darfur peace process in Qatar. And these processes, uh, combined with my Kurdish experience, put a question into my mind, a puzzle, which um, I think is the first uh, principle of political science. You have to have a puzzle which you want to solve. My puzzle is straightforward. Why were the Kurds not as ardently secessionist as the South Sudanese, when both had extremely good reasons, as I'll try to articulate, to become secessionists? The, um, let me go back here. I'd like to um, visually illustrate my uh, practical involvement in, in all of these activities and to give you a warning. If you like conflict, one of the great things about conflict is it keeps you slim. If you like power sharing, negotiation, dialogue, interaction, it makes you fat. That's, that's the warning. As you can see, the, the group in South Sudan here is um, physically challenged, all of us, I think, apart from the very slim lady at the back who, who organized um, the tour. So power sharing has its costs. What I'd like to do is to demonstrate that Sudan and Iraq, countries that are not normally compared, have six remarkable parallels in their history, which contribute to the puzzle that, I, that I've identified. Those six remarkable parallels are ones that Iraqis and Sudanese people usually resist. When they hear me making the comparison, they uh, usually object to it and accuse the other country of being a site of barbaric violence. How could it possibly have any relevance to our own country? Um, usually they end up persuaded, perhaps because I talk too much and they, they surrender. But I think there are demonstrable, important and significant parallels between these two countries in ways which I hope you'll find of interest. The first is that both of them are British creations out of Ottoman legacies. It's very clear that the British took over both countries, um, obviously at slightly different times in world historical time, but in general towards the uh, apogee of power of, of the British, particularly in, in the wider Middle East. It might seem that there's an important difference in the fact that they were both the subjects of the British Empire in that Sudan was a condominium. It was co-governed by the British and the Egyptians, at least in name. But I think that was a distinction without a difference because the governor general of Sudan was always British. The district officers in Sudan were always British. The Egyptians simply supplied the infantry. 
So both were unquestionably um, examples of British colonial rule in Ottoman territories. Not only that, but they come into being as a result of um, both being illustrations of what I call British trinities. You know the mystery of the trinity, how can three become one? Well, in, in this case, we all know that Iraq was formed out of fundamentally three units. Uh, the uh, Vilayat of Mosul, which is most of today's Kurdistan region in Iraq, the Vilayat of Basra in the south, and the Vilayat of Baghdad. Those were brought together by the British between 1916 and 1926 to create the novel state of Iraq. Sudan, it's much less well recognized, is also the product of a merger of three entities. North Sudan, which had historically been the site of the Funj Sultanate uh, and subsequently the site of the first Maatist state in modernity, merged with South Sudan under the Turkia and later under British conquest uh, under General Kitchener, and Darfur joined Sudan as a result of its ill-advised decision to declare war on the Germans in 1916, which led to a prompt and rapid British conquest. So Sudan, rather like, the, uh, rather like Iraq, <coughs> is a product of three entities being put together under British rule. And you can say, with I think a reasonable degree of um, conviction, that the territorial fragility of both countries was built in at its inception. That's obviously true with South Sudan and with Kurdistan, but it's also the case with Darfur. The two names, Darfur and Kurdistan, tell you something about their entrenched ethnic identity. Darfur is the land of the Fur, who constituted the dominant ethnicity behind the Fur Sultanate that existed uh, between, 19, uh, sorry, between 1898 and 1916, and it previously existed for a couple of centuries, ending in 1872. Kurdistan is, in the Farsi language, a land abounding with Kurds. So both entities are British trinities. Both entities come into existence um, early in, in the, uh, the 1920s. They're both named by the British, and they're both named with British skill in inaccuracy. The, uh, Iraq, of course, was the name of the south of Iraq. The distinction uh, that the Arab geographers drew was between uh, al-Iraq al-Arabi and al-Jazeera, which is, uh, roughly speaking, the desert area uh, around Baghdad. So Iraq was the name of part of the state that was given to all of the state. And the purpose of this British renaming was to mobilize the Arabs of Iraq against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, it was plainly not an identity that had anything to do with the Kurds, historically or uh, as it subsequently transpired later. Sudan, by contrast, was the name of a much wider entity than the country the British named Sudan. It was the name the Arab uh, geographers gave to the entirety of uh, the immediate belt of sub-Saharan Africa that was just below the desert. Uh, the French used the term Sudan for Mali. The British used it to name the new state. And the fundamental purpose there was to build a collective identity against um, Egypt to prevent the possibility of a convergent identity between Arabized Sudanese uh, and the Egyptians. Subsequently, these names, Iraq and Sudan, and the collective identities that the British partially promoted, achieved some partial success. But that success was largely confined to the Arabized populations. 
The name Sudan was accepted eventually by both northerners and southerners. Initially, the northerners regarded it as an insulting name for themselves, but they eventually accepted it. The South Sudanese are seceding and have seceded using the title of Sudan. Both uh, embraced the name, both fought over, the, uh, over who would be entitled to possess the name after the breakup. And it's clear that Sudan, as the residual state, uh, and South Sudan, as the secessionist state, have to accept that Sudan has the entitlement to the name under international law. In the case of Iraq, the Kurdish uh, people were exceptional among the peoples of Iraq in terms of accepting an Iraqi national identity. Shiite Arabs largely bought into a collective uh, Iraqi identity, but one for them that was centered on Iraq, not the wider Arab world. They did not regard themselves as Persians, like their Shiite neighbors to the east, but they also didn't want to be embraced as part of the wider pan-Arabist vision. By contrast, Sunni Arabs, who founded the state in many important senses, were the most enthusiastic embracers of the Iraqi identity, though, as I've suggested, their part of the state was historically not called Iraq at all. So that's their beginnings. The second parallel I'd like to draw between the two states is to emphasize that they respectively mark the northern and southern edges of the Arab or Arabized worlds, respectively. They give way at their edges to peoples of quite distinct ethnic and religious character. In the case of the, the frontier between North and South Sudan, it's evident that the South becomes more clearly African rather than Arab or Arabized, Christian and animist in character. In the case of Iraq, as you head north towards the Kurdistan region, you come across a belt of what I call micro-nationalities. Uh, Turkmen, who identified uh, partly with Turkey and partly with the ancient Turkmen, Three brands of Christian, Chaldeans, Assyrians, and Syriac Orthodox, each of which also thinks of itself as a nation. And you also have interesting minority religions that are not much uh, recognized in the rest of the world, Yazidis, um, and uh, you also have some Mandeans. These occupy the disputed territories as they're known in Iraq. In fact, the disputed territories of Sudan should have that name because they too are pockets of mixed belts of population that mark the boundary between the, the, the north uh, and the south. If we look at the disputed territories in Iraq and we look at electoral data from 2009, which I think are the best data to use because they give you fine-grained information at the right local level, it's clear that the area of white in this map is very strongly pro-Kurdish and pro-Kurdistan, which is why I've not bothered to record the electoral data in these areas. The green belts mark areas of strong Kurdish affiliation, in which at least 62% um, of the population or more support uh, the parties of Kurdistan, would like to be part of the Kurdistan region, and in some cases would like to be part of an independent Kurdistan. The shaded areas, by contrast, indicate areas where uh, non-Kurdish populations jointly comprise a collective majority, and support for the Kurdistan lists in the elections was less than 40% in these vicinities. 
So in both of these cases, you have a core Arabized or Arabic uh, uh, state confronting disputed territories where they give rise to a core entity, potential secessionist entity, belonging to another clearly identified ethnic group. In both cases, you also have an insecure Sunni Arab elite. And that Sunni Arab elite blames the British, partly correctly, for preventing them from assimilating either Kurdistan or South Sudan into the new collective identity of the state. In the case of Sudan, the British administered South Sudan separately from the north, and under the closed districts order uh, rule of 1922, they prevented either the Islamization or the Arabization of the south. They preserved a pattern of indirect rule, uh, but they obviously prevented the possibility either of voluntary or indeed coercive assimilation of North and South. Much the same pattern can be detected with regard to Kurdistan. It too was indirectly ruled. Arab administrators during the British mandate between 1920 and 1932 were not significantly present in Kurdistan. It had separate administration. In some cases the British in fact invented a new landlord class who um, carried out functions on behalf of the mandate. So in both cases, we have a Sunni-dominated elite confronting distinct <coughs> populations where they are blocked from um, getting any degree of cultural control over them in colonial times. They only get an opportunity for uh, cultural dominance after independence. So in both cases, we have frustrated but eventually um, successful elites who achieve their goal of trying to pursue the centralization of Iraq, the centralization of Sudan, in ways that were intended to ensure that the relevant population became Arabic-speaking, culturally uh, identifying with the new state. But in each case, they both met with, and I emphasize the word, the adjective, continuous resistance. The projects to create a unified Sudan under Arabic and Islamic provenance, the project to create an Iraq that would be Arabic-speaking, um, both met continuous resistance and both eventually met failure. The third parallel I'd like to draw between the three cases is that until 2005, the critical date, both countries were dominated by an elite from one part of their respective countries. In the case of Sudan, in 2002, you could get on the streets of Khartoum a book called The Black Book. The Black Book was written by the Justice and Equality Movement, a radical Islamist movement which had broken away from the governing Sudanese National Congress Party. They used official Sudanese sources to document what everybody knew. What everybody knew was that Sudan had been dominated from independence by three northern riverine tribes, the Shagia, the Jahalin, and the Danakla. I can never say it correctly, the Danakla. Between them, less than 5% of the population of Sudan, they controlled the presidency, they controlled the premiership, they controlled most cabinet positions, they dominated the officer corps, they dominated public uh, enterprises, they also dominated the private sector. 
Sudan was completely dominated by this elite until 2005, when officially it began to share power with South Sudan, and it began to incorporate, at long last, some elements of the Sudanese population from elsewhere in the north. This is remarkably similar to what happened in Sudan, excuse me, what happened in Iraq, where Sunni Arabs dominated the newly independent state when the Sharifian um, officers of the, Ottoman, um, of the Ottomans came in uh, with the British saddlebags to dominate Baghdad. Until the monarchy is overthrown in Iraq in 1958, the Sunni Arabs, who were ex-Sharifian officers, were in control of the cabinet, in control of the military, in control of key public enterprises, and to a lesser extent, because there was a significant Shiite bourgeoisie, they were also uh, dominant in the private sector. The big change that occurs in Iraq is under the Ba'athists, when there is a shift. But that shift can be effectively and accurately interpreted as a shift in which Sunni Arabs held power in Iraq. Because what happens is that the Ba'athist Revolutionary uh, Command Council is mostly dominated by the cousins of al-Bakr and by Saddam Hussein. 14 out of 15 members of the Revolutionary Command Council in 1978, which is the year before Saddam Hussein becomes president, are Sunni Arabs. The other remaining member of the committee is an Arabized Kurd whose mother was, I believe, a Sunni Arab and had not lived in the Kurdistan region. So in both cases, you have a terrific level of regional, ethnic, and uh, religious concentration of power. Um, this photograph, which shows um, how handsome the young Saddam Hussein was, uh, indicates his warm relationship with al-Bakr. That relationship was so warm that, they, um, that Saddam didn't actually kill al-Bakr in the course of uh, removing him from power. But if you look at the Ba'athist elite, most of them are relatives of, of, of one or other of these particular men. The fourth parallel between the states is that they had remarkably similar political trajectories uh, from independence up until 2005. And that's especially so in the aftermath of the Egyptian revolution, which had a widespread impact in the Arab world at that time, just like today's Egyptian revolution may have a similar influence. Both states, in their foreign policies, became pan-Arabist. Both of them took very similar lines on the conflict between Israel and Palestine, and that wasn't taking the Israeli side. Both of them reflected the power of free officer movements. Both uh, countries, um, after uh, 1958 uh, in the case of Iraq and 1968 in the case of Sudan, were, were taken over in military coups led by free officer movements which used Nasser's free officers as their template. General uh, Abdul Karim Qasim and Colonel Ghaffar Muhammad al-Numeri were soldiers cut from the, the same cloth. They both pursued remarkably similar policies. They established one-party state socialist regimes, or at least their successors did in the case of Iraq, and then they switched to um, privatization of um, a suitably kleptocratic and corrupt form. Both countries were secular, and then they became Islamic. Um, in the case of Nimeri, he managed the remarkable accomplishment of doing it 
um, in, his, in, in the same period of office. Indeed, the period in which he uh, announced the conversion of Sudan to Sharia law is exactly the same period when he removes autonomy from South Sudan, but I get ahead of myself. This is a picture of uh, Nimeri holding um, Nasser, Nasser's hand to his right, and I think you'll recognize the gentleman to the left. He's the only one of the three who's the father of an LSE alumnus. Now, that, that time period, I mean, it's a long time since Gaddafi came to power. That's how long ago uh, Nimeri and, and Nasser were, were co-brothers. That period of free officer movements pursuing um, state socialist policies tends to be forgotten now. But the two countries had that experience in common. And of course, they also both became petro-states. Petro and some people think that that's the key factor in explaining the heightened level of authoritarianism, corruption, and indeed ethnic antagonism, which exists in both states. But I don't think you can use the general resource curse thesis to account for the politics of either of these states. I think history is a better guide to understanding what happened in both of these countries than the regressions carried out by uh, Dr. Paul Collier, who was the man who taught me economics in Oxford more years ago than I care to remember. He was then a Tanzanian development economist, and I was uh, a young student. Perhaps we both should have remained what we were then. Collier's argument is that if you, if you are uh, a state with lootable natural resources, your, your destiny for conflict uh, is more or less written in, in the facts. I don't think this applies to either of these countries. In both of these countries, rebellions were well underway before there was any significant knowledge of the level of uh, petro-riches in the respective countries. Sudan has its first rebellion in 1955, the year before official independence, when the Equatoria Corps revolt because of the possibility that they will be deployed elsewhere in Sudan and Arab-dominated uh, military units will be deployed in the south. In the case of Kurdistan, the Kurds are already rebelling, rebelling in the 1920s, before the Kirkuk oil field is discovered uh, and exploited, before there's any significant knowledge of the scale of Iraq's oil wealth. So it's true that petro, be, becoming petro-states enabled both states to develop very strong militaries, which gave them the capability of crushing rebellion and engaging in militaristic kinds of adventures. But I don't think you can account for the origins of conflict through their petro-status. Through their petro -status. What does matter is that when the states become petro-states, that fixes the motivation of the center towards places like Kirkuk and the disputed territories of Iraq and places like Abyei and the disputed territories of Sudan. These pockets of mixed ethnic and religious settlement that I've talked about already were close to the border of the southern complex in the case of Sudan and close to the border of any prospective Kurdistan region in the south. And the discovery of vast oil deposits in these locations gave the center a very, very strong incentive to keep control of those areas, to encourage ethnic conflict in those areas, and in both cases to engage in large-scale ethnic expulsions. So I think the root, what happens with the resource curse here is that it, it, it can be used as an argument for explaining the behavior of the center, not the explanation 
of, of the conduct of the minorities. Both states, as I indicated, developed um, overly strong militaries. For those of you who are interested in uniformity in political science, I do have one large end result to report. The possession, the possession of a moustache is an invariable feature of a military dictator in Sudan on the right-hand side of the slides and Iraq on the left-hand side of the slides. Even the fake military man Saddam, Saddam never was a soldier, even he felt obliged to develop the moustache. If we look at these men, what's significant about them all is their um, prior status before they became presidents. The field marshal at the, at the bottom, uh, Dahab, is the best of these gentlemen because he restored parliamentary government to Sudan. All of the others uh, took it away. In the case of Abud, the story is slightly more complicated. He does deserve commendation for stepping down. But the golden rule that you should observe from these cases is that a coup is less likely to be carried out by field marshals or serious generals that have accomplished their, their, their full status. Coups come from colonels and those just below the general, uh, the general class. And if there is to be a coup in Khartoum any time future, uh, in, in the near future, and a coup any time in the near future in Baghdad, that's where you should expect it to come from, from the colonel class and those just above colonel. The military dominated the politics of both countries for an extraordinary long time, shaping their budgets, shaping their foreign policy, shaping their internal relationship to their minorities. And this was, of course, partly linked to the hyper-centralization of both states. If we look at the Sudan of today and compare it to the Sudan I knew as a teenager, it's the case that five out of Sudan's current 39 million population live in what are called the three towns of Khartoum, Khartoum North, and Omdurman. It's been estimated that within a 300-kilometer belt of Sudan, over half of the population can be found. There's definitely um, 7 million uh, within uh, a 30-mile uh, radius. I've got the, the wrong figures here. But it's been estimated that over half the population uh, of the north, at least, can be found within 300 kilometers. In the case of Iraq, Baghdad's population density is quite extraordinary. It's gone to uh, almost 6 million out of Iraq's current 30 million people. And roughly a quarter of Iraq's population arguably live in what might be called the greater Baghdad area. In the course of doing research on Sudan, I came across this remarkable quotation, which I can't uh, resist reading to you. Uh, I can't quite get the sonorous tones of the man who composed it, but I'll try uh, to at least convey what he said. The degree may vary with time and place, but the political supremacy of an army always leads to the formation of a great centralized capital, to the consequent impoverishment of the provinces, to the degradation of the peaceful inhabitants through oppression and want, to the ruin of commerce, the decay of learning, and the ultimate demoralization even of the military order through overbearing pride and sensual indulgence. When I ask people to, to guess who this author is, they normally say Edward Gibbon. It is in fact Winston Churchill composing his journalistic essay, The River War. Uh, I'd just like to note that that's the first occasion 
on which I've agreed with Winston Churchill uh, in my life at the London School of Economics. So the link between all of those variables is apparent. You have an ethnic minority, you have a subset of that ethnic minority in charge of the state, you have uh, a continuous project of homogenization of minorities that can't really work, you have um, a petro-state, you have the capability of building an incredible military, and you build capitals, part of which are surrounded on their outsides by refugees from the internal conflicts that those militaries generate. It's not a pretty picture. Both states obviously ended up becoming deeply repressive both towards their ethnic and their ideological opponents. The scale of these combats is perhaps insufficiently known. In the war between Anya Nia and the, and the Khartoum government and the SPLM rebellions after 1983, the best estimates are that up to two million people may have, ki may have been killed. Not, not only through direct combat and collateral damage, of course, but also through the famines caused by uh, both uh, government counterinsurgency strategy and, in some cases, the actions of the rebels themselves. In the Darfur region, there was a 30-year war between 1963 and 1993, more or less unreported in the West, a war of bewildering complexity in which Gaddafi was involved, but it's extremely difficult to work out what was happening. And in this war, it's impossible to find in either the French language or the English language primary sources any estimate of the total death toll in this period, but it was obviously significant. Darfur, since 2003, has been aflame, and there are rival interpretations of what's going on there. One interpretation is that the Khartoum government has repeated its practices towards the south of deploying militias recruited from particular tribes, usually Arabized tribes, and deploying those against the more African and least uh, Arabized tribes of the region. And they have been practicing uh, a combination of vicious counterinsurgency strategy with genocidal assaults. That's one interpretation. It's the interpretation of the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Khartoum's interpretation is that it has been dealing with a terrorist war sponsored partly by Libya, for which there is um, some evidence. It's also, however, a conflict which Khartoum interprets as one of the oldest kinds of conflict in human history, a conflict between nomads and settled peoples. And there is some truth in that, but um, I think the, uh, the, the bulk of the evidence is in favor of the ICC interpretation. So Sudan has had an extraordinary history since uh, the over the last 30 years of internal wars, a series of expulsions, large-scale war crimes, uh, and genocidal acts. If we look at the geography of Sudan, there's no area outside the northern core which has not been affected by insurgency or counterinsurgency of one kind. Even up in the east, there's no light here. The purple zone out there in the east, that has been a, a site of, of conflict. Um, it's not the only locale, of course. Um, the Darfur region has been twice the site of, of major conflicts and may well uh, see a renewal of conflict, though there's hope as a result of the recent uh, Darfur peace agreement. The area in red is Abbey, which um, is a zone just north of 
legally recognized South Sudan, but ethnically part of the southern complex, and only transferred to the north by the British in 1905, admittedly at the request of the local Nagok Dinka population who feared the raids of the Masoria Arabs. Sudan has been basically a site of multiple wars for much of its independent history. And we see, of course, a rather extraordinarily similar picture in the case of Iraq. Kurdistan had rebellions in the 1920s and the 1930s. It had a rebellion led by Barzani uh, in 44 and 45, and again from 1961 onwards. Kurdish rebellions against Iraqi regimes culminate in the Anfal genocidal campaign of Saddam's regime in 1987-88, in which some 4,000 Kurdish villages are destroyed, and according to Kurdistan regional government estimates, uh, up to 182,000 people were killed or died as a result of detention, incarceration, and, and starvation. But the Kurds were not the only people repressed in Saddam's Iraq. The majority population, the Shiites, also experienced very extensive repression. In 1991, at the end of Gulf War I, after George Bush the Elder had called upon the people of Iraq to rebel against Sudan, the Shiites did so, as well as the Kurds. Um, the Americans stood to one side for a while, and Saddam engaged in massive repression. <coughs> in which up to 300,000 Shiite Arabs may have died. Uh, and another 300 may well have died in the campaigns against the Marsh Arabs, which took place in the southern governorates of Iraq in the late 1990s. Saddam's regime, unlike Sudan's regimes, actually went to war, partly to solve some of its internal security questions. Saddam famously tried to go to war with Iran, and he also conquered Kuwait. That never happened in the case of Sudan. Sudan has not ever engaged under any of its regimes in a direct war against another country. It has, however, tried to assassinate the leader of another state inside the capital of another state, and it has supplied rebel movements in at least four out of its nine neighbors. Both regimes carried out extensive counterinsurgency programs which verged upon genocidal acts. So it's a gruesome common history that they have in their political trajectories. Parallel five, they've both been remarkably geopolitically insecure, and they've also generated a great deal of insecurity around them. I've already indicated that there was external support for internal rebellions by outside powers in the case of Sudan. Many of Sudan's neighbors helped the SPLM. In the case of Iraq, many of Iraq's neighbors helped the Kurdish uh, movements, including at various junctures Iran um, and uh, indeed um, to a very, very small extent, a limited extent, Syria. Both countries, as I've indicated, interfered with their neighbors. And I don't even have to mention the role of great powers or great regional powers to uh, emphasize that these have both been sites of great insecurity. This is a hotel in Khartoum. Uh, its official name is the Burj Al Fatah Hotel. The local Sudanese who have a tremendous <coughs> sense of humor call this hotel Gaddafi's Grenade. 
That's because it's supposed to resemble a grenade in some fashion. It is a, an investment of the Libyan Investment Authority. I'm not saying this in, o in order to cause unease uh, in the presence of alumni of the uh, London School of Economics, but rather to emphasize the scale of weird Libyan relationships with Sudan, both sponsoring insurgents and engaging in normal investment activities in the heart of the capital of Khartoum at the same time. Both Iraq and Sudan were countries that tried to, to penetrate their neighbors and were penetrated in return. The last parallel that I wish to emphasize is that in both countries there was an experiment with an autonomy settlement with the largest minority in the country. And those power-sharing experiments proved short-lived, but I don't think we should interpret them as wholly cynical projects on the part of the respective central governments. The March 1970 agreement made between Saddam Hussein and Mullah Mustafa Barzani offered at the time what seemed like a successful settlement of the Kurdish question in Iraq. There would be a Kurdistan region, it would have uh, extensive domestic autonomy, including control over its own culture and language. Its boundaries would later be fixed by a referendum process uh, that would be attached to the disputed territories. The ministers of Iraq would contain a certain quota of Kurds. The highest levels of the army would also have an infusion of Kurdish officers. The Kurds would have official language rights in Iraq as a whole. Their language would become one of the two official languages of, of Iraq. That was a settlement with some prospect of success. It dies, however, in 1974-75, when it becomes plain that the Ba'athists are not going to allow a referendum in Kirkuk, because it's clear that the data would suggest that Kirkuk and other areas in the disputed territories should go to the Kurdistan region. Mullah Mustafa Barzani goes back into rebellion in the mistaken belief that the United States, Israel, and Iran would help him. In fact, they changed sides and did a deal uh, with, um, with Saddam, in effect, because Saddam makes a deal with the Shah of Iran in Algiers in 1975, which leads to the complete defeat of Barzani's movement. So in the case of the Kurdistan experiment in autonomy, it's in effect wrapped up in 74-75. Though Saddam never completely abandons it, he has a, a, a puppet autonomous Kurdistan uh, administration uh, kept in the north uh, as, as long as uh, he kept it uh, up until 1991. But it wasn't seriously representative of the Kurds in any significant way. Immediately after the defeat of Barzani, Saddam decides to gerrymander Kirkuk. In a slow process that took uh, some 20 years, uh, roughly, the, uh, roughly half of the territory of Kirkuk province, or governorate as it's known in, in Iraq, was taken away. The province was reduced in size by 50%. The Kurdish majority districts to the right on the map before you were transferred to other provinces, and an Arab majority district on the left, Al-Zab, was attached to the Al-Hawija Arab-dominated part of Kirkuk province. Kurds and Turkmen were expelled from the city and province uh, of Kirkuk, and Arab settlers from the south brought in with incentives to try and alter the ethnic demography 
of the district. What happened in Sudan was astonishingly similar. And it's so similar that I think there must actually be some, uh, some personnel relationships that I've not yet been able to establish. In 1972, an agreement is made in Addis Ababa between the leaders of the southern rebels and Nymeri's regime in Khartoum. It grants autonomy to uh, a South Sudan region. It says that the boundaries of the South Sudan region will be determined by a referendum or can be determined by a referendum in due course to identify the correct boundaries of the southern complex. Ministers in a given quota are to go into the uh, Khartoum government and the officers of the South Sudanese rebels are going to be incorporated into the military of the Sudanese uh, army. Sudan in the south is to get its language rights. In its case, it wanted English as its official language rather than Arabic, and it is agreed that both English and Arabic will become official, state, uh, official languages of the new Sudan. And just as in the case of Iraq, this autonomy settlement eventually breaks down. And it breaks down in a similar way uh, in that the entity that previously had autonomy is partitioned, uh, the center unilaterally breaks the agreements, particularly the agreements related to deciding future status of disputed territories, and uh, eventually the settlement comes to an end. This is the text of the Addis Ababa Agreement. For those of you who know the March 1970 agreement uh, with Kurdistan, uh, I've highlighted certain passages. I'm not going to go through it, but it is absolutely stunning how similar the clauses are. Uh, given that both were drafted in Arabic, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Addis Ababa Agreement was modelled in some way on the March 1970 Agreement, which at the time people thought of still as a prospective success. And what happens in the case of Sudan after the breakdown of the Autonomy Agreement is remarkably like what happens to Kirkuk. In this case, the area of Abyei, which is north of uh, official South Sudan, uh, is treated to extensive ethnic cleansing. Uh, the Sudanese government is concerned to make sure that Indian, Malaysian, uh, and Chinese oil companies can operate freely in the region. And a significant effort is made to decouple uh, this entity from its largely southern ethnic character. Abay is Sudan's Kirkuk. Uh, Iraq's Kirkuk is its Abay. So I've tried to persuade you through these six parallels, long-run parallels, that you should expect, if you were South Sudanese and Kurdish, to be completely in favor of secession from these kinds of regimes. If there's ever a case for secession, it surely has to be a case for secession from these kinds of regime. But that's not what has happened, so why not? Just to compound the puzzle, I'd like to emphasize some short-run changes that took place in 2005, which you might think, have, you might think would have led to uh, both Kurdistan and South Sudan seceding, but that's not what happened. And what are those short-run similarities? They both had new constitutions in 2005 based on new agreements. Those were genuinely negotiated by the relevant local parties. It's true that American diplomats played a significant role. They're present in the making of them. In the case of Baghdad, it's occupied by the American army. But nevertheless, there are good grounds for saying that both of the agreements 
are locally negotiated and locally agreed. And the parallels between what they agree are stunning. Sudan is effectively remade as a power-sharing federation in the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. A three-person presidency is created, a president, a first vice president, and a president. And it's agreed that the president and the first vice president, one of them, uh, if, if one is a president uh, from the north, then the first vice president will be from the south, and vice versa if the president is from uh, the south, the first vice president will be from the north. <coughs> There's an agreement to have proportionality rules in shaping the legislature and in public expenditure across regions. There are wealth sharing formula built for the allocation of oil resources. There are careful security provisions to separate the armies of the south from the armies of the north and to allow for the possibility of integration if um, the experiment in making power sharing works is to succeed. Abbey is to be decided by a referendum. This time it will be a referendum that will take place on the same day as the referendum to decide whether South Sudan leaves Sudan or uh, decides to stay with the North. That's the Sudanese agreement of 2005. The Iraq agreement of 2005 also remakes Iraq as a power-sharing federation, also initially creates a three-person presidency this time with the remarkable outcome that a Kurd for the first time becomes the president of Iraq. Proportionality formulae are attached throughout the legislature and rules governing the allocation of oil resources. There's a wealth sharing formula modified with certain technical clauses that I'm happy to talk about, but the fundamental idea is to remove the center's control over oil resources and their allocation and to ensure that each region and province of Iraq gets a fair proportion of both local and collective wealth. Again, there are security provisions. The Kurdish Peshmerga are not merged into the Iraqi army. They're entitled to become the security forces and the undeclared official army of the Kurdistan region. Kirkuk is to be settled by a referendum. So we have, again, a remarkable series of parallels in the short run, but we have a different outcome. The very last parallel I'd like to emphasize is that there's a deep new civil war in both Arab-majority parts of Iraq and Sudan after 2003. In the case of Sudan, it's the Darfur conflict, which is a major intra-Arab or at least intra-Arabized conflict. And in Iraq, it's the civil war between Sunni Arabs and Shiite Arabs. Now, whatever you may think about the causation or whatever your moral interpretation of their respective war, these respective wars might be, these were opportunities for the respective secessionists in South Sudan and Kurdistan to leave. So once again, the puzzle deepens. Why does South Sudan secede, whereas Kurdistan does not? My colleague, Peter Galbraith, who worked with me in advising the Kurdistan government, had a very successful book published under the title, The, the End of Iraq. Now, I'm very jealous, of Peter, that he had a book published with uh, such success, and he had so many sales. But he was wrong. But most people had good reasons to think that he was right that the end of Iraq was a good prediction to make in 2006. It didn't happen. And in 2006, uh, or at least in late 2005, before John Garang's death, I can document that the conventional wisdom was that Sudan would stay together, that Garang's ambition 
was to transform the whole of Sudan rather than to accomplish a secession. So we have to account, therefore, for what I have described as a puzzle. So let me get to my answer. Why didn't the Kurds leave the burning ship? The answer can't just be the constitutional texts of 2005, because you could say that the constitutional text of 2005 in Sudan said there will be a referendum and the South Sudanese will get to vote on leaving Sudan. And no such equivalent clause was put in the Iraqi constitution. Well, I don't think that's a sufficient answer because uh, you have to ask why did uh, Masoud Barzani, the, the, uh, uh, the son of Mullah Mustafa Barzani, decide not to insist on a referendum clause for Kurdistan? You also have to recognize that the Kurds have no constitutional obstacle to holding a referendum at any time. Holding referendums is not an exclusive power of the federal government under Iraq's constitution. So nothing stops the Kurds from having a referendum to secede if they so wished. And indeed, the evidence is, if you ask the Kurdish public, would they like to secede from Iraq, the answer they will give you is yes. So I don't think looking at the texts is sufficient. Is the explanation to be found in the fact that Kurds are Muslims, whereas the South Sudanese are Christians or animists and not Muslims? And therefore, the cultural difference or religious difference between North and South in the case of Sudan is so deep, whereas Islam bridges the conflict between Kurds and Arabs. I don't think that's a compelling answer because the Kurds of Iraq uh, do not have exactly the same brand of Islam as the Sunni Arabs of uh, the, the South and Center. And indeed, their brand of Islam is such that they regard current versions of Sunni Arab uh, theology uh, to be both intolerant, exclusive, uh, uh, and uh, indeed deeply uh, un-Islamic. That's not the explanation. And indeed, the Kurds made an alliance in making the constitution of Iraq with the Shia Arabs, who uh, in general do not share their religion. There are some Shiite Kurds, but not many. This is the, uh, the, the front row of the constitutional convention of, of Iraq, just before the constitution is signed. Most of the figures you see in the front row are either Kurds or Shiite Arabs. So I don't think that's the explanation, nor, nor can the explanation be that Kurdistan and South Sudan differ importantly in their internal characteristics, which explains what we're trying to explain. The reason you can't make that argument, I think, is it's clear that Kurdistan is far more internally homogeneous than South Sudan. Kurdistan is, of course, internally heterogeneous, but the differences among Kurds pale into, in, into insignificance by comparison with the difference among South Sudanese, who don't speak the same language, and uh, frequently, English is their bridge language, and many of them don't speak it. Juba Arabic, a creolized Arabic, often uh, suffices as a, as a link language as well. The ethnic differences between Dinka and Nur are at least as extensive as the differences between uh, Kermanji and uh, Sorani speakers among Kurds. So you can't explain it that way. You can't explain it by the difference in the power of the South Sudanese rebel movements compared to the Kurdish ones. Some people have suggested to me that the SPLM was just a better army and therefore it negotiated a stronger deal. But the SPLM was in serious difficulty in the 1990s. It had a, it, there was a civil war between South Sudanese movements, just as there was a civil war among Kurdish uh, uh, political and military movements in the 1990s. 
So I don't think the answers are to be found there. One answer is that the constitution of Iraq has worked better than the comprehensive peace agreement in Sudan. It's been respected better and it's worked better. For the Kurds, they have seen the constitution partly respected. They have had revenues allocated from common Iraqi funds for them to spend. They have had their autonomy generally respected. But you shouldn't go too far in this direction because the uh, governments in Baghdad have not respected the constitutional clauses with respect to oil and gas. And they've not respected the clauses with respect to defining the Kurdistan boundary so that those, those parts of the disputed territories where there are significant Kurdish majorities can join the Kurdistan region. And indeed, there's been a revival of Arab centralism in recent political elections. The CPA's failures are obvious. Many of the provisions were not implemented or they were implemented very late. And of course, they were radically affected by the death of Colonel John Garang in unexpected circumstances, uh, which some think of uh, as still highly dubious. Now, I think that the key difference in terms of the workings of the constitutions is that Iraq had genuine free and fair elections. Yes, with difficulties, but genuinely competitive elections. <coughs> By contrast, Sudan did not. The elections there took place late, and they took place under a quiet deal. The quiet deal was that the SPLM would not contest the successes of the National Congress Party led by the Sudanese Islamists in the north, and the north would not contest the legitimacy of the SPLM's victory in the south. So the elections were used for the carve-up and consolidation of the two parts of Sudan under their respective um, preeminent parties. Uh, I'm not saying that the election in, in Sudan in 2010 was entirely fraudulent, but it was significantly fraudulent by comparison with the elections in Iraq. So I think the answer is partly that Iraq genuinely democratized a little bit more than Sudan, but that's not all of it. There are two key answers that I want to put before you. One will have occurred to you. The neighborhood is different. In the case of the possibility of a greater Kurdistan, which I've sketched in purple, that has historically been regarded as a mortal threat by Turkey, by Iran, by Syria, and indeed by Arab Iraqis. The Kurdistan regional government, which I mark in red, is obviously only one portion of a possible greater Kurdistan. There is no equivalent greater South Sudan on the agenda. That means that South Sudan's road to independence was eased because neighborhood objections were less. They didn't directly affect them. And indeed, South Sudan had consistent neighborhood support, particularly from the Christian powers of Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya. So there is obviously some important difference in the neighborhoods uh, in shaping uh, the outcomes that we're talking about. But we shouldn't go too far in that direction because, after all, geography isn't destiny. And moreover, you have to account for the behavior of the local South Sudanese and Kurdish leaderships. The additional geopolitical variable that some would emphasize is the United States. The United States was opposed to the secession of Kurdistan. It was opposed to the secession of Kurdistan because it didn't want to displease its Turkish ally. 
By comparison, the United States was neutral, uh, perhaps quietly in favor of the secession of South Sudan, because after all, the US relationship with the Islamist regime in Khartoum was not good, just to use uh, diplomatic language. That's partly, uh, that's also part of the story. But the Kurds did not have to behave in, the way, in a way that was compliant with US wishes. And they have shown at various junctures their ability to do the opposite of what the US has requested of them. So I, I think that the neighbors and their powers matter, but it's not the entirety of the answer. We have to look at how the respective leaderships of the respective potential secessionist entities behaved. And here I think it's very clear that what happened in South Sudan between 2005 and 2010 is that the South Sudanese leadership, especially after Garang's death, reassessed Garang's vision. Garang's vision was, let's unify all the peripheries and oppressed of Sudan, let's mobilize among the poor of the Arabs of the north, and we will have a decisive electoral majority, and we can transform the whole of Sudan through democratic methods. That vision was abandoned by the southern Sudanese leadership under, um, uh, under uh, particularly uh, President Kiir. And the reason it was abandoned was not just that Kiir was more secessionist than Garang had been, but because they looked at the census results, and the census results told them that South Sudan would only be 20% of a new Sudan, not one-third. So their prospects of being pivotal in reshaping the north were not what they thought it might have been. Moreover, the South faced a North that was willing to downsize. Why was it willing to downsize? The North decided it preferred to remain Islamic rather than to secularize the whole of the Federation in order to keep South Sudan inside it. When we were part of a team to negotiate North-South questions, we were asked what idea could be put on the agenda that would make the southerners stay in Sudan. And we said it's obvious, go for the Nigerian model, it's a Muslim majority country, but the federation is secular. And in majority states in northern Nigeria, they can practice the Sharia. In other parts of Nigeria, that's not the case. You can have this as a model. It's a, a Muslim model. It's an African model. You can work with it, and you'll be able to keep the south. They absolutely refused to discuss this. It was unmentionable. They, they said they had not gone through blood and fire in order to repeal Sharia law. So a southern elite that reassessed the prospects of the South's chances of being pivotal in a remade Sudan combined with a, a northern center that was willing to downsize rather than to sacrifice the cultural accomplishments of the Islamic transformation. That's my argument for the South. What about for the Kurds? The Kurds decided that they would not go for secession because that way laid the experience that they'd had in the uh, early 1990s through to 2002. Impoverishment, lack of recognition, no prospect of exporting their oil. If by contrast they worked inside Iraq, they could build the substance of domestic independence and have the core of statehood 
without the formalities of sovereign independence. In the negotiations, they made it absolutely clear that they would keep their army, that they would uh, demand that they be able to control the oil resources of Kurdistan, and that they would have full domestic policy-making powers. And instead of deciding to secede, they decided to pursue what I call uh, a Western politique, a diplomatic engagement of Turkey to balance Turkey against Arab Iraq. Now, you may think that that's like making an alliance with your biggest enemy. Well, that's not how the Kurds of Iraq thought about it. Turkey is their neighbor. Turkey is the route through which Kurdish oil is exported. Turkey is the largest neighborhood military power. Turkey is also an emergent democracy. The Kurds of Iraq decided on a strategic rapprochement with the Turks. And by and large, that policy has worked and it has brought about a, an exit route for Kurdish oil and a political agent to balance against Arab Iraq. Now, the reason this can work is that Kurdish votes matter both in Iraq and in Turkey. It's true that Kurds are only one-fifth of the population of Iraq, just like the South Sudanese discovered they would only be one-fifth of the population of Sudan. But in Iraq, Kurds are mostly pivotal because Arabs are mostly divided, and not simply on the Sunni-Shiite divide, not the prospect that the southern Sudanese <coughs> were facing. And Kurdish votes matter in Turkey because under the democratic transformation of Turkey, the soft Islamists want to accommodate their local uh, Kurds. They, they're not going to give them everything, but they want a settlement of the Kurdish question in Turkey. And their best partner to accomplish that is the Kurdistan regional government in Iraq because it's the mechanism through which the PKK's rebellion will eventually be brought to an end. So to conclude, I have a remaining puzzle to solve. Why are the Arabs of Iraq not downsizers? Why do you want to keep on to Kurdistan? Why do you want to keep Kurdistan if you're an Arab? After all, they don't like you. They've clearly established a federation against your will. You'd rather have a much more centralized system of government. They're secular. They haven't insisted on Islamicizing the constitution. Shouldn't you want them to go? Well, some do. But those who don't, I think it's pretty easy to understand why they don't want the Kurds to go. Sunni Arabs would be deprived of 20% of Iraq's population, much of which is not Shiite, and much of which they have historically hoped to use to balance against Shiite power. The Shia don't like the idea of the Kurds going, but they're the, they, I think, are the genuine potential downsizers in the future. They're not downsizers at the moment. And they don't want um, the Kurds to go because they don't want the whole of Iraq to break up. They prefer an Iraq, preferably one under general Shiite dominance. So the picture I hope to have conveyed to you is that the South Sudanese and the Kurdish leaderships, in a short space of time, strategically adapted to their respective neighborhoods to make the choices that they did. Those choices were not foredained in advance, despite the immense pressure and the immense enthusiasm among their respective publics for secession. It didn't necessarily have to happen in South Sudan, and it may yet happen in the case of Kurdistan, but it hasn't happened because of strategic and, one might argue, wise decisions made by the Kurdish leadership. Now, you shouldn't draw the conclusion from what I've said 
that I think that the secession of South Sudan is going smoothly or will continue uh, to go very well. There are potentially many wars ahead, particularly over the disputed territories. Nor should you draw the conclusion that I think Iraq's stability is assured. But I do think I have solved the puzzle that I put before you. And if you think I haven't, I look forward to listening to you disagreeing with me. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Brendan. Would you like to stand and take yeah, questions? Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, there are microphones available with the stewards. If you could just um, introduce yourself very briefly, just your name, maybe your, your, you know, your location, and uh, ask your question briefly, please. Yes, up here on top right. Yes, yes you. My name is Shafiq Mullah Jassim. I'm from north of Iraq. Not really Kurdish, but I'm uh, very close to the Kurdish territory. I respect what you said, Mr. But a few things you missed out, you didn't mention it. One of these things about the history, if you go back to the history of the Kurdish people, the Kurdish people are victims of their own leaders, not of the governments of Iraq. That's one more important point. Why? Because simply, when the Kurdish uprising in 1926, the first country in the world used chemical weapons against the Kurdish as a Britain. This is fact. I'm afraid you didn't mention this point with my respect. I don't know why for any reason, for one reason I, or I, the other. I, I usually do mention that. I, I, no, I, I apologize I don't know, for maybe forgetting I, that. I, miss, I, I don't know, but I haven't heard that. Secondly, all the history of Iraq, all the governments in Iraq came, and every government, if you look very, very deeply and study, there are many Kurdish high figures in the governments or all Iraqi governments. Uh, for example, there, uh, we had a prime minister called Nouri Said. He had 14 times he was a prime minister of Iraq. When Iraq was, is, was and is, it's Arab country, right? 83% of Iraq are Arabs. And he was killed. No, we he had, yeah, he was he General Nouri Said, he was Kurd. Don't argue with me. Nuri. I'm, I'm Iraqi and I'm Kurd. I'm half Kurd. I'm half Kurd. I know my history. I know my history. Could you please ask a question or. The question is. Yes. Yeah, the question is. Could you tell me who brought all those leaders, Iraqi leaders, in the power? Who brought them? Thank you very much. Thank you. I want you to, to give me honest and decent answer for this question, please. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. I can, I can uh, guarantee you honesty in my answer. I can't guarantee you decency. Um, <laughs> Nuri, Nuri al-Said was not Kurdish. He was, he was brought, he was, brought, he, he was uh, one of the Sharifian um, people in the, in the entourage of the Hashemites. The uh, question you ask is about the uh, origins of the, the current leaders in Iraq. They came to power through elections. Those elections would not have happened if the Americans had not removed the Ba'ath dictatorship from power. But they did come to power through free and fair elections. Um, as for the Kurdish people and their relationships with their leaders, those are normal. Most nationalist and ethnic movements have leaders 
whom they regard either as noble stalwarts <coughs> of the cause or corrupt betrayers of the cause. And what is interesting precisely about the question I was posing was why did the Kurdish leadership insist on making a federal Iraq rather than going for independence, which is the heartfelt wish of most of their public. And I tried briefly to explain why they chose that option, and they chose that option knowing that their public in their hearts preferred independence. And I think that's an interesting question to have to address. But thank you for your questions. Okay, here in the middle. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Professor, for that impressive presentation. Uh, my question is just one. Uh, first and foremost, I just need to correct the number of people who died in Sudan. They are four million, not two million. Uh, secondly, I, need to I just need to know whether, what is your take on the contentious areas? The South has gone. We have left with Abia, we have left with Southern Kordofan, we have left with Blue Nile, and these are very, very important areas, and they are looking for the secession. And there's other part of Darfur. Do you think Sudan will continue to break up because South has gone? Or do you think that could be the, the South has gone and the other part of Sudan could continue with the rest? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. On the, the question of death tolls, there's, there's lots of controversy. Uh, two million is the most widely cited figure. I have seen estimates as high as four million. It's very difficult to, to calculate uh, correctly. Whatever the figure, it was appallingly high. In the case of the disputed territories outside of what is now recognized as the territory of South Sudan, the difficulty is, um, legally, if you make a contract, and South Sudan did make a contract with the North, that South Sudan could secede, but made no contract for Blue Nile um, and South Kordofan, um, it means that South Sudan, when it seceded, recognized that those areas were part of North Sudan. It did not recognize Abe because there was a separate um, protocol attached to Abe, which the North failed to implement and failed to respect. So there will be no difficulty for the South in internationalizing the question of Abe, and that there hasn't been. Uh, there may be debates about how the South has handled the question, whether uh, military intervention was the correct strategy and so on. But it's clear that negotiation is going to take place between the North and the South over Abbey. Only yesterday, uh, Pagan Amun uh, indicated the outlines of a deal in which they would give the North reasonable access to oil at reasonable prices to help out the regime in Khartoum, provided the North accepted that Abbey went, went to, to the South. I think there's still room for maneuver there. I think it's extremely unlikely that this Khartoum regime, having been humiliated and defeated by the secession of South Sudan, in difficulty because of oil questions, uh, is going to surrender other parts of the South. If it did, uh, or, uh, or what is now the South of the North, if it did, I think uh, the regime would not survive very long. It is possible, of course, that we are going to see the breakup of the North, and we'll, we'll see further conflict and antagonism, particularly if the effort to achieve a settlement in Darfur doesn't work. And then, then I'm, I'm afraid anybody's guess is as good as anybody else's about what is going to happen. But I think if I'm in the, in, in the government of South Sudan and I'm trying to consolidate a new state, I think the priority of, of the leadership will be to get Abiy, but not to be seen openly in any way encouraging the secession of Blue Nile and, and uh, South Kordofan.
Thank you for the question. Okay, we have lots of questions. Um, do please introduce yourself. Um, I'm Dan Nassimala from the Government Department. Um, I actually have two very quick questions. The first is um, sort of more methodological, if you want. Um, what you've given us in the sort of uh, method of agreement, most similar systems approach, is a very, very structural explanation that's, that's going back, you know, many hundreds of years. But the sort of switch, uh, as in the differences in the outcomes, tend to be, tends to be pretty instrumental in terms of the decisions of the leaders. So if you could account for that, that would be great. Um, and then the second is just um, another factor, which is that I just looked up Bashir uh, has been in power since 1989, is that right, roughly? The, the Sharia in um, Sudan? Yes. No, it's been in power since 1983. And it, it was Naimiri who first introduced it. Okay, so then here's, here's the, um, the other factor is that, of course, Iraq is a completely different regime. So if you're uh, a Kurd, then you're dealing with a really different regime, whereas if South Sudan, you're looking at basically the same people who have been um, sort of, you know, getting at you for, for 30 years almost. Um, right. So those are the two questions. Thank you. Um, the, the, the first one um, is, uh, that asks me to reflect on the contrast between structural and instrumental explanation. I, I, I never see these as antitheses. Um, you should situate instrumental decision-making in, in long-run structures of some kind. I would not say that, uh, though I did explain the leadership decisions as rational adaptations, I'm not trying to say these leaders don't feel nationalist sentiments. They do. And they're making very difficult decisions. Uh, they're making them under extraordinary pressures. But I, th I think it's important to try and combine the long run and the short run. In, in this case, I, I do think um, the power of the, the argument rests on showing why, why Kurds should seek to go, and they didn't. And I think that's that, that's a rather interesting puzzle to try and have to solve. And I, I know, uh, did they did they fail to secede because they were irrational? No, I don't think so. Um, the, the the second question is about the nature of regime type. I partly answered that when I said that Iraq is more democratic, but I, I, I don't want to exaggerate the extent to which the Iraqi regime has democratized. And I also uh, would would caution you that most Kurds don't think that the Arabs have changed. They don't think that the Arabs are Democrats. They don't think of them as liberals. They don't think of them as human rights respecting. They don't recognize that there has been a, a total transformation at Baghdad. They hope for it. And that what's very clear is if there is a coup and an, an end to democratic formalities, that's when you should expect the Kurdish referendum. Yes. Did you want to ask a question? In the, uh, sorry, here in the, no, yeah, yeah, in the pink T-shirt. Uh, hi there. Um, my name's Will Paxton. I'm here in a personal capacity, really. Um, I have a question about the role of the international community. Uh, I was slightly surprised at how little attention you gave it, really. Um, it'd just be interesting to know a bit more about uh, the, the kind of direct role that the U.S. particularly played. I suppose the sort of hypothesis is that if you're uh, a kind of potential leader of a, a successionist state, then if you know that independence is on the table, i.e. international recognition and all that comes from it, 
and that's going to uh, change your change the way you behave considerably. Um, so I was slightly surprised by that. And I also had a cheeky uh, other question, uh, which may be a bit tricky to answer, but um, uh, there's a sort of debate in an African context about why states, which are pretty random in terms of how they were uh, drawn up in the kind of uh, well, the pre and then immediate post-colonial period, why they've stayed together. And uh, I spent some time working in Rwanda over the summer, and there was a bit of a discussion about whether the, the South Sudan example is going to lead to other kind of breaking up of states in Africa. Uh, and I, I'm sort of taking from your talk that that's probably not the case because of the very particular circumstances. But if you had any thoughts on that, that would be interesting. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll answer the second question first. The South Sudan secession is the first secession in Africa uh, that breaks the African Union um, Charter, which was the, the Club of States agreement that we will recognize no secessions. We won't uh, allow breakups on our continent. You may say that Eritrea was a previous precedent, but they, the lawyers attached to the African Union, the lawyers attached to Ethiopia, those attached to Eritrea said, oh no, this is just a normal decolonization, because Eritrea had been an Italian colony. Uh, at the moment of decolonization, there was an agreement that there would be a, a federation of Ethiopia and Eritrea. The Ethiopians broke that. Therefore, this is just going back to the decolonization of Italy. It's nonsense, of course, but that's how they covered it legally. This one is novel because it's the first internally negotiated secession through an agreed referendum process. And the countries that are most likely to be worried by it are precisely those which have a, a north-south Islamic, non-Islamic division. So read across uh, the middle belt of Africa. Though none of those are currently in such a state of organization or indeed of democratization that you would expect uh, this kind of referendum process to occur. But I, the South Africans were most resistant of the major African powers to seeing this go ahead from my, my personal experience and from what others have said. Nevertheless, the African Union respected that this was an internal Sudanese decision to allow a breakup. The quiet background story is that black Africa welcomed a new black African state because it did not like black Africans being oppressed by Arabs. But that was not explicit, that was usually not explicitly stated. Now, the, the first question, the role of the international community. Now, when I hear that phrase, it either means the United States and its allies, or it means myself and the NGOs I approve of. Uh, and I'm not sure which way you were, were using the, the phrase, the international community. I think you were asking about the role of US power. The US wanted a centralized Iraq. That's what they wanted in 2004 and in 2005. Why is it because Republican Americans are deeply committed to centralized states um, and deeply anti-federal? No, it's because the, the core interest of the US once they'd removed Saddam's regime was to have a strong Baghdad regime to balance against Iran. And they feared that a decentralized Iraq would be an opportunity for the Iranians. So US preferences were for a centralized Iraq. But they could not stop the Shiite Arabs and the Kurds negotiating and making 
a decentralized federation which was then subsequently endorsed by four out of five of Iraq's voters. Yes, you can ask questions about the extent to which they knew the, the core content of the constitutional content of what they were approving, but there's no doubt that it was an authentic and indigenous process of negotiation. The U.S. shaped the fact that there was a new regime. They did not dictate its character. In the case of Sudan, they were much less directly involved in the, the, the uh, Senator Danforth and other U.S. diplomats did play a role in the background in the making of the 2005 Comprehensive Peace Agreement. But so did a lot of neighboring African states. And they came up with a very creative formula, how the North could make unity attractive. There was a constitutional program to do so. And at the end of it, if they hadn't, there would be a secessionist referendum. And the widespread expectation was that Garang uh, and the others who were party to this agreement would make unity attractive so that the question of secession wouldn't eventually arise. But texts have consequences, and in this case it did. Uh, yes, here. Yes, um, hello there. The, the names you and Grant and former... Hold on one second. Yeah. Uh, the name's um, Ewan Grant. I'm a former intelligence analyst with Customs and Excise, where much of our work was trying to... I paid to all my UK taxes when I lived here. Lived um, a lot of our time was spent trying to connect, and indeed connecting apparently unrelated factors, such as uh, the impact of the attack on the World Trade Center on cigarette smuggling in Northern Ireland which was a very real connection. Um, my question is, um, in the co wider context of the Arab Spring and the econo world economic crisis, is Khartoum now safe, as I think you implied, against um, further encroachment from the south, although not necessarily an internal breakup of the north? in that it has essentially a blank check of economic and political support from China and arms and ammunition from Russia, um, given that the oil fields, although in the south, are very close to the boundary. And secondly, if things really get bad in Iraq, um, would that be a possible, is, is that not going to keep Iraq essentially federal and united, or between Shia and Sunni, in that either Baghdad or Basra would have a, a similar blank check, which they'll never have to use, because the Kurds will know, basically, Chinese support and Russian support under any circumstances, so that there would not be an independence referendum in Kurdistan, because of the fear Thank you, thank you very much. But, um, very, very interesting uh, questions. Um, I think the, the jury is out on whether the Khartoum regime is safe. They've just lost a third of the country. They've just um, put their entire oil supply and therefore over 90% of government revenues in jeopardy. They have high prices um, facing the urban population of Khartoum, which didn't really bear the full costs of conflict in the past because oil calmed the, the costs of conflict. But the population of the north is going to feel the costs of the regime change, um, which has led to the departure of the south. 
So I wouldn't feel confident if I was a member of the Khartoum elite. Um, the Chinese are often um, dealt with in people's analyses in very strange ways. Um, I think the Chinese are extraordinarily pragmatic. I had the privilege of being at a Security Council retreat in which I met um, a key Chinese official. He asked me what I thought of China's uh, Sudan policy, and I said, well, um, you didn't exactly um, make yourself attractive to the West in terms of your concern for human rights. The policy looked entirely oil and materially oriented. He said, mm, yes, I think that's a, an accurate description. Uh, and I said, um, I, I assume, however, that you will make very good diplomatic relationships with the South Sudanese government. He said, that is our, in, our intention. Um, they will switch. Um, they are not concerned by norms deeply in the way that Western governments are, are more concerned by norms. They are concerned with their energy supplies. They will not prop up a collapsing northern Khartoum regime uh, if it looks as if it's going to collapse. Um, we'll see. I, I, I can't tell what the fate of the, the current regime is in, in Khartoum, but I wouldn't say it's out of the woods. Now, when the Americans depart from Iraq, the interesting question is what happens? Is there a sufficient internal balance of power in Iraq to prevent anybody from establishing either uh, an individual dictatorship or a dictatorship rooted in just one of the three communities? I don't think so. And if provided um, there, there is no, no decisive shift in alignments that I can't foresee at the moment, um, I think that there will be bloody events that will continue to happen in Arab Iraq, but there won't be uh, a rapid regime change. The most interesting question to come, and one which isn't decided yet, is what are the long-run consequences for Iraq of a possible collapse of the Ba'ath regime in Syria and a possible collapse of the Iranian regime? And I think of those as more likely outcomes than some of the very bleak scenarios that people have about Iraq. But I realize I'm in a, probably a minority of four or five people in thinking that way. Thank you. I think we're, we're, we're more or less finished. We're past our time. <coughs> Forgive me, but we're past our time at 8 o'clock. Um, you can, you can certainly... As an Iraqi, I would like to ask uh, Professor O'Leary... Can, can, you, can you come up and ask... Professor O'Leary, the picture you, you, you painted of Iraq, especially in your parallel four, doesn't give any good reflection as to what actually was happening in, in Iraq prior to the aggression on Iraq. Well, can I, can I, can I, just, just one moment, can I just ask you, because we are, we are at the end of our time, can, can you come down and ask? Absolutely. I, I'm can, not can, a Sunni, I'm not a Shia, I'm not a Kurd. Could you, I'll, I'll let you guess for yourself. Could you come I'm, down and ask Professor O'Leary directly? Professor he, I'm sure he'll be very happy. I'm, I'm happy, but, I'm happy but to talk. But we must bring this. I would like to gather you two here. You, 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 you glossed over the whole of history of Iraq, excluding Ahwaz, excluding how Kuwait was seized, and given the greatest separate state. You, you speak of some, some moustache, Jerome. Well, I happen to have, to have a moustache, so please don't take, take that against me. Right? I don't. You talk about authoritarian 
corruption and the ethnic. I am, as I said, I'm not a Sunni, I'm not a Shia, I'm not a Kurd. So where, where do you get those information for? Have you lived in Iraq? Yes. You have, how long? Um, about a year in total. How many? A year in total. Which, when? Uh, mostly, uh, do, do you want me to give you precise dates? No, 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 no. Uh, I'll look uh, at my okay. passport. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you want to ask further questions, you'll have to come down. I think we need to bring our our, our meeting to a close. Thanks very much to, to, to Brandon for giving us.